Steph. <laughs> Hit stop Dear recording. Steph. Dear Steph, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> Let me give you a brief note on what you need to do next. Do you talk to yourself like that, George? I have definitely written myself emails that were signed off. Lots of love from past George. Really? <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. I was playing a game recently with some friends where it's supposed to be data they've collected. And then you make a guess, like how many people have given a speech to over 100 people or something like that. And then you're supposed to guess and then other people agree if it's higher or lower. And uh, one of the questions was, how many people talk out loud to themselves? And I found out it's a third of people. So decent amount. I honestly thought it'd be higher. But I guess that's because I'm in the group that talks to myself. So of course, I I think everybody else does it. Uh. They do not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph, your host for today, as Chris won't be joining this episode, but I am joined today by George Brocklehurst. George is a development director for our New York City team, and I believe this is your second time on The Bike Shed. Does that sound correct? Yeah, I think so. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's so wonderful to have you back. And I believe we're both in the middle of Raffapalooza projects right now. So the Boston office or across all the Thoughtbot offices, we're engaged in our internal hackathon where we have two days, we get together, we form teams, and we work on different projects. I'd love to hear how it's going in the New York office. What are all the projects y'all are working on? What's your project you're working on? So we have a bunch of cool projects happening. Uh, one is we do this event every quarter or so called a Women's Work Jelly, which is like if you are a woman working in tech and you want to work alongside other women working in tech, our office is open for a Friday every quarter. Just come and work here, hang out, network, meet people. We've been doing it for a while and it's been a really fun event, but we've never got around to making much of a web presence for it. So one of the projects is kind of turning that into more of a real thing with a a place that's more findable where people can get information and sign up for the next one and join mailing lists and do all that kind of stuff. There's a few hub improvements happening. So smoothing over some like sales and scheduling pain that people feel. I'm very excited for that. (laughs) Yeah, Hub is our internal tool that we use for, as George has mentioned, a lot of our scheduling and keeping track of projects. And it works, it functions, but the UI is not the friendliest to figure out. At least I have found it to not be the friendliest to figure out. I think others agree with that. Yeah, it's definitely one of those tools where we are too focused maybe on doing things for our clients. And so our own apps go a little bit neglected sometimes, but... Yeah, that yeah. seems fair. I love the Women's Work Jelly. That sounds really cool. I didn't realize the New York City office is doing that. How many people typically show up for that event? It can be really varied. I think we've had uh, some fairly quiet ones that were like five or 10, and we've had some fairly large ones that were like 25. So it depends on the time of year, depends on what else is going on. Okay. But yeah, it's definitely been a cool networking event. It's been a great place for like us to meet more people in the city and for other people to connect tends to be the kind of event where like pairing happens and people are pairing across companies and across disciplines and learning things from each other. And it's quite a nice atmosphere. So it's always fun when there's uh, a jelly on and there's a bunch of people in the office. Awesome. Yeah, that's what I was just about to ask if lots of people are pairing across with each other. Because that's one thing I think we've tried to do here in the Boston office every now and then, where we'll invite folks to just come and hang out and spend the day with us. But 
that's really motivational for me. I'd love to do something like that in the Boston office where we invite people to come and spend Fridays with us. Because we also used to have, I think it was called the Genius Bar back in the day, which is a fun title for it. But it was one of the events here in the Boston office on like a Thursday where you could come and basically get help on anything. And it was a couple of thought botters sitting at a table and you could bring your problems to them. And they certainly helped me get through my first job where I was a junior and I had no senior developers to work with. So I was coming to the ThoughtBot Genius Bar to get help with my work that I was doing. So that's a really cool service that y'all are offering. I think the London studio have done an office hours thing recently that sounds similar to the Genius Bar, but the Jelly is definitely like we're not positioning it as a come get help from ThoughtBot. It's more like come meet your peers and hang out and we'll give you space in which to do that. We'll give you lunch. We'll give you bagels. Like we're definitely facilitators rather than trying to be experts in that space. Although we will help people out if they do have questions. That sounds perfect. Friends and food. What else could one want on a Friday? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm curious for the Raffapalooza, because I feel like I've noticed a little bit of a theme for the Boston office for our hackathon. Is there any particular tech stack that folks are choosing or gravitating towards as they're picking up these projects? I think there's quite a mix in New York this year. So I mentioned the the Women's Work Jelly site. That's a mix of kind of middleman and Airtable. And I'm not sure what else that team's using. The Hub stuff is a, is a Rails app. So there's a lot of Rails things happening there. And depending on what data they're touching, I guess that system also uses bits of like Kafka and other things to shuffle data around. The project I'm working on is Swift, which one of the things that attracted me to it is I've never written much Swift. So that's fun to try. So yeah, the, the tech stacks tend to be fairly varied. How about in Boston? Similar. It's pretty varied, although I think there's a pretty strong pull towards Elm for this particular event. We have at least three projects going where folks are using Elm. One of them, there's an artist who I'm probably going to botch some of the details here, but they used to create instructions for how to generate art. So one of the projects is programmatically generating art based on instructions that a user can provide. So they can say, I'd like this number of lines to be this thick and this color, and then it will use that information to then generate images, which looks really neat. I myself, I'm working on a game, which is really fun. I've never built a game before, so that feels very cool. And I'm working within the Elm stack. I'm pairing a lot with Josh Clayton, one of our other Elm experts in the office. There's one where folks are generating topographical maps. So they're getting government data and then creating all the lines based on the data so they can generate the map, which looks really cool. And then another team is working on Ralph Against Humanity. Are you familiar with the Cars Against Humanity? Yeah, I've, I've played that once or twice. Cool. So they're working on a Ralph version where it's going to be fun consulting questions. And then there's a dealer that gets to choose their favorite answer from the group. And they're using React and they're using Firebase, which I haven't heard of before. But Carl Reyes, who is working on the project, was telling me about it. And it seems to be a real-time database. It's a service that's offered by Google And it's storing the data in JSON, but then pushing all the updates to all the connected clients. So then that way, anytime something is written to the database, it immediately surfaces in the React app as well. And then there's no backend application. So it's just React and it's connected to a database, which seems pretty cool. I'm curious to see how he feels about it afterwards, working with it for two days. Yeah, I've I've played around with Firebase a little. never used it in production, I guess. Perhaps wrongly, I, I feel slightly nervous about the lack of control of like, oh, well, I'm just throwing this data into a bucket and then I'm able to get all of the data back. And what if I want to filter it strangely or slice it differently or migrate something? Can I do those things? And you probably can. I just haven't dug into it enough to, to really understand. 
I think that's a fair concern, though, because that's one of the things that he had mentioned as well is because everything's done on the front end, which is something that I feel most of us try not to do, where we do a lot of the logic and filtering and sorting and things like that on the back end. And then so the front end is really just more of a, a view layer. It's just rendering what we're sending over from the API. So, yeah, that was something that he'd mentioned that feels very weird is that everything has to happen on the front end. So you don't have that back end space for it. So, yeah, we've um, we have lots of cool projects. Cool. Very cool. And I think you had mentioned that you're using GraphQL, like you were working on a project where you're using React and GraphQL for the first time in production. Yeah. So I've been doing this for a while now, so I, I feel like I'm into the swing of things. I've been with this client for about nine months at this point. But yeah, that's definitely been a learning curve, especially using those tools for the first time in production on a client that is in a fairly complex domain. It's a healthcare application. So there's a lot of government regulation and the business logic is quite complex necessarily from the fact that there are lots of different laws to comply with and they vary from state to state and you have to know a lot about who the user is and where they are to even know what rules apply. Yeah, the, the React and GraphQL side has been fun. And then there's also a lot of Python in the project, which is much more my comfort zone. So, Oh, that's an interesting mix. How does Python fit into the tech stack? So the back end is a whole bunch of services mostly written in Python, at least all the ones I, I need to touch regularly are written in Python. And they're all communicating with each other over gRPC. And then there's kind of one service that is collecting data from other places and exposing it as a GraphQL interface to the React front end. Cool. So what do you think of it so far? By the way, Chris is going to be very jealous that you and I are chatting about GraphQL without him. Hi, Chris. <laughs> uh, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I think Chris would be pleased to know that I, I'm a convert, especially on the GraphQL side. The ability to slice the data based on exactly what you need rather than what you thought you would need when you built the backend is a huge plus. We've also seen lots of benefits around typing in our JavaScript layer, which I, I've never seen before in a REST scenario where we're using flow types in JavaScript. And because we're using Relay for GraphQL, we get flow type definitions that just appear based on our GraphQL schema. So the objects that are coming to us from the backend, we already have some type annotations on them and some type guarantees around them, which makes it really easy to keep things typed. You don't have that kind of big hole of untyped data flowing in from your backend that you then have to be disciplined about annotating if you want the, the type checking benefit. So both the kind of GraphQL slice the data how you want and the relay get types from your schema rather than having to write them all by hand in your JavaScript code has been a really nice combination. Yeah, I have not been fortunate enough to work with GraphQL in a production or client application, but I imagine that's part of what I would enjoy the most is having that type schema to confirm exactly what the response and request should look like. Did you help them migrate to GraphQL? Was this project already using a GraphQL endpoint before you joined? It wasn't. So this was one of the first external uses of GraphQL in this company. They had some internal GraphQL services already, but this was the first kind of GraphQL to a web client thing. And so, yeah, it was definitely uh, it was definitely new ground for a lot of people working on the project, not just for me. But I think we've all been enjoying the benefits there. Although there's certainly some things we've learned along the way, things we could improve also. It's nice on the front end that we can slice the data however we want, but we are probably over querying on the back end in a few places because, for example, we might need to fetch some data from a service and it can only provide all of what it can provide. So we're maybe making a quite expensive call and then because we're slicing up the data with GraphQL, we're filtering out 90% of what we just asked for before we return it to the front end. So 
think one of the things we're looking at for the future is pushing more of that filtering and more of that conditional querying further into the backend systems so that we get some of the, the kind of performance and cost benefits there rather than building a big data structure and then filtering it down to something small before we send it to the client. Mm, okay. So when the request is coming into the GraphQL endpoint, there's a perhaps an opportunity to filter more aggressively before collecting all the data? Yeah, because we're not fetching from databases and, and those kind of places that have filtering baked into them, we maybe have to fetch everything we know about a person and then just return the two fields we requested to the front end because we're fetching from a service that doesn't know how to filter. But if that service knew how to filter, we could request, oh, hey, we just need these two fields about this person and maybe that would be faster, possibly more reliable, lower use of resources at high traffic times, all those kind of things would be nice. Cool. Have you been on the project for a while? Uh, yeah, it's been about nine months. So. That's a pretty long engagement for us, for at yeah. least one person to stay on a project. I think it's the longest in, in seven years at Thumb, I think this is the longest time I've been with one client. So yeah, that's definitely feels different. But as I mentioned, it's a really regulated space. So getting to spend a lot of time learning the domain has been helpful, I think. I wouldn't necessarily want to spend nine months with every client, but when there are so many rules to learn, it's been nice to be around for a good long time to gain that knowledge and then be able to apply it and go through some iterations and not feel like I just found my feet and then I'm on to the next thing. I have found that to be a similar experience for myself where working in healthcare companies, there's just a little bit more of a ramp up period to it. Like the tech stack and stuff, that's something that we're pretty comfortable with when we transition from one developer to the next. But when it comes to a lot of the healthcare compliance and regulations and those rules that go with it and the setup, that it's a bit easier for us to stay on longer term versus trying to rotate more frequently, like our three to four month typical cadence. I'm curious, have you experienced or encountered anything particularly interesting while working in the healthcare world? I've certainly been learning a lot about how it works. I think I went into it somewhat naive about the US healthcare system because I've only lived in the States for a few years as well. So I maybe didn't even just have the baseline knowledge that, that someone might have about how healthcare works. So there's been a lot of fascinating personal learnings. I could bore you with lots of detail about open enrollment periods and Medicare Advantage plans and other <laughs> acronyms, but I won't. I think on the, the tech side, it's been a while since I've been in the same app for this long. And so it's nice to be able to shift into a slightly more long-term mindset rather than thinking, okay, everything needs to be in a state where I'm ready and willing to hand it off and leave it with a client developer at any time. It's been nice to be more able to think, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to be back here in a month or so, so I can think about how I might like to refactor this, but I don't necessarily see the, feel the same pressure to get it done now because I know I'm going to get to see this through the next iteration and maybe the next iteration before I have to not be around anymore to answer questions or, or get to work on it myself, which is not to say I'm, I'm kind of slinging bad code over there, but it's kind of satisfying to get to come back to a thing a few times and feel like you really got to get it right over time rather than focusing on like getting it right with what we know right now and doing a quick handoff. 
Definitely. It's nice to see some of that come to maturity when you've been working on something. And then after you implement it, give it some time to see how it's settled, how users are working with that feature. That's been one of my favorite experiences. There's a client here in Boston that I've been fortunate enough to have three rotations with. So I've worked with them for a couple of months, and then I'll go away and work with a different client and then go back to them. And that's been a lot of fun and a real joy to get to work with them, step away for a couple months, and then go back and check and see how things are doing and and kind of learn from that experience of like, what changed? Like, how did we do the first time? Do I still feel the same way I felt when I was first implementing some of that work and getting an opportunity to refactor? So yeah, I, I completely agree that it's, it's sort of nice to have that settled idea of like, I'm going to be here for a little while. And I have time to make changes after these initial impressions or first implementation. Yeah, definitely. And even though we like to be driven by data and user research, there's always going to be some amount of assumption that we're making before a thing has really shipped and really made contact with real people in the real world. So it's nice to get to see, did our assumptions play out? And if they didn't, why not? And then be a part of making those changes too. Yeah. And so you'd mentioned that you're also working with React. Have you worked with React before? I'd worked with Vue before, so it feels fairly similar to that, but I hadn't done any kind of production React code. Are you using TypeScript in React? Flow instead of oh, TypeScript. Oh, Flow, okay. Yeah, it's a kind of organizational choice in a very large team. So we're picking tools that are being used by 150 other developers rather than necessarily the tools that would be better. I don't, TypeScript seems to have some advantages over Flow, but I think it's definitely a better choice to use something that is familiar to such a large team rather than kind of strike out on our own and be the only odd example of TypeScript in a in a big sea of flow code. Yeah, that can be hard context switching in case other developers, once we're no longer there, they need to switch into it. I'm less familiar with flow. Could you tell me some of the differences between flow and TypeScript? It's similar in the overall concept in that you are annotating your JavaScript code with types but it seems to be somewhat less powerful around some of the the more advanced features with the combining of types or things like exhaustive checking of enums, just just those kind of niceties where you're like, oh, I've read a case statement and I've probably got all the options, but I don't know, the type system's not going to check that for me. So I guess we'll see. It seems like TypeScript just has that little bit more polish on some of the edges. But at this point, I've worked with Flow far more than I've worked with TypeScript. So maybe I'm just thinking the grass is greener over on the other side. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't gotten a chance to experience it. But it sounds like TypeScript's a bit more strict with the types and your type checking and safety. Okay. Well, shifting gears just a little bit, you mentioned recently that you have been doing some refactoring to GitSH. It's one of the projects that we have here at ThoughtBot. And I myself have not used Git SH before, uh, but it's an interactive shell for Git. I know that much about it. <laughs> so could you kind of walk us through what is Git SH? When did you kind of get started with that project? So it came out of a lunchtime debate back in the old ThoughtBot Stockholm studio, probably about six or seven years ago. And we were talking about user interface design and how kind of the user interface principles we might use on the web also apply to development tools and command line tools. And things like the principle of least surprise, like doing the thing that the user expects so that they don't have to think too hard about using your app. So in a web app, that might be the logo is a link to the homepage because the logo is always a link to a homepage. So just do that because it's what people expect. And we were trying to figure out what that was on the command line. And one thing we sort of disagreed a little on amongst the team was subcommands, like the way that with git, you type git commit or git push. 
And each of those commands is then its own little world with its own options. And how in the, the earlier days of Unix, subcommands didn't exist. The popular approach was to make a custom shell, to jump into an environment that was dedicated to that tool. Because if it was complicated enough to require multiple commands, it probably wanted a whole bunch of other custom stuff as well. So Mike Burns, one of the Thoughtbot developers in that conversation, thought he'd experiment and try it out. So he hacked together a very quick prototype of a Git shell, where instead of having subcommands, you would jump into a shell. And instead of typing Git push, you'd just type push. The prototype was terrible. I don't think Mike would mind me saying that. It, it crashed pretty frequently. But he, he built it in about an hour, so it's not too bad. But both Mike and I enjoyed using it, and we both felt, actually, this is a good user experience. This is something that we feel has been kind of missing from Git. So let's throw away this prototype and start over. And so we started, uh, the prototype was a Python script, and we started a Ruby project because we figured that would be a more widely known tool within, within the ThoughtBot team. And six years later, we're still still working on this thing. <laughs> That's really cool. I, You know, it's funny. I had even forgotten we had a Stockholm office at one time. That's really cool. So is this something that you particularly use in your day-to-day? My typical workflow at this point is I have a Tmux, kind of full-screen Tmux window, and most of it is, is filled with Vim. And then I have like a little 80-column strip down the left-hand side, which is split in the middle. The top part is just a regular bash shell. Still haven't made the Z shell, C shell switch. And then the bottom corner is is a Git shell. So I do all of my Git stuff in Git shell and run my tests in the, the bash shell and then everything else is happening in them. Okay, cool. You know, this is one of the projects that I've seen on the peripheral where I've been interested in using it. I think I'll have to I'll have to make that happen next week where I integrate this to my work environment. It sounds like the main benefit from using Git SH is I get to just leave off the Git command. Are there any other benefits I'm missing? Or There's a few things you get from being in a dedicated shell that are quite nice. You get tab completion out of the box without having to go and configure that in your shell. And Git ships with things to integrate that into most of the popular general purpose shells, but you still have to know that it exists and go and change your config. Similarly with the prompt, the Git shell prompt will tell you things like what branch you're on and what state the repository is in. And you can do that in a general purpose shell, but you have to go do some research and configure some stuff. And then we do some things that are specific to just being in a shell that's dedicated to Git. So we have the concept of a default command, which is if you don't type anything and you hit return, Git shell can still do a thing for you. And out of the box, that is running Git status. It seems like a pretty common pattern to like run status and then do a thing, or do a thing and then run status. And so you can get to that very quickly. Oh, I like that. That's really cool. You might have just sold me there, (laughs) just on that particular feature. I think the tab completion system as well is getting to a point where it's better than the get out of the box tab completion systems. If people who are listening to this disagree, please open issues on the GitHub repo and then we can make sure that it is better. The out of the box general purpose shell tab completion systems use some fairly dense shell scripting to try to figure out roughly where you are. And it's just a big pile of conditional statements. And that works pretty well, but it can only go so far. The Git shell system is a a little state machine that runs. So it looks through each word that you've typed in the command so far or each argument you've typed in the command so far. And for each one, it kind of transitions into a new state. And then from that state, it understands, oh, these are the places I could go from here. Like from the state where I've typed add, I could maybe be typing an option like dash dash patch, or I could maybe be typing the path to a file. So if you start tab completing after add, you're only going to get dash dash patch or 
paths to files, which is pretty nice. Also, this state machine is all configurable through a, a custom language that we created that sort of feels a bit like regular expressions. So you can write a config file where you could say like add dollar path plus, meaning add could be followed by one or more paths. And so if you have custom git commands, if you have aliases that you use, you can write a tab completion scheme in your git shell configuration files for your custom git commands, for your custom aliases, all that kind of thing. Oh, wow. That sounds really cool. Is a tab completion something that's been around in the shell for a while? I feel like you referenced recently that you did a pretty heavy refactor to this application. Is that the refactor that you had worked on or is that something else? Yeah, the state machine thing is is fairly new as of the last couple of releases. It's When I say new, Git Shell's a, it's not a fast-moving project. Like It's fairly stable at this point, but it's something we've been chipping away at over the last couple of years. Before that, we would just tab complete anything. You know, we tab complete a path, a branch name. We didn't do uh, arguments and switches and things. We didn't care where you were in the command. We just tried to tab complete something. Whereas now it's very contextual and very customizable, which is nice. That's really neat. You know, I've never built something like that. So that's interesting and a really nice value add to where it's looking at the commands that you've already entered to try to figure out where you're going next. How is it implementing that feature? Any any fun bumps in the road along the way? I think the hardest part was figuring out what we needed because there are so many Git commands and they have so many different options that every time we thought we'd landed on a good representation of how we could express the possible command line arguments in a config file, we'd hit an example that just did not fit with our scheme. And I think at the point where we hit on the idea of it being somewhat similar to regular expressions, where instead of dealing with characters, we're dealing with command arguments and being able to say, well, it could be this argument or that argument. This argument could be repeated or can be omitted. It came together quite quickly, in part because there's a lot of theory around how to implement regular expression matches, which we were able to lean on fairly heavily. Because it, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's a similar enough shape of problem. You know, building a state machine, building an ambiguous state machine that's allowed to think, okay, maybe I'm in one of these two states and we'll find out when we see what comes next. All of that was straightforward in the sense that we could stand on the shoulders of giants once we recognized that this problem was the shape of a previous problem. Yeah, because I imagine there are, as you mentioned, there's so many Git commands that there are so many varieties of combinations that someone could be attempting to create that trying to help that person with the combination that they're particularly aiming for is a very fun problem to tackle. Yeah, and it, it gets even weirder when you consider things like the arguments available change between Git versions, which is not something we support yet, but there's an open issue on the repo to have different versions of our tab completion config file for different versions of Git so we can pick the right one and make sure we're not telling you, oh, you can tab complete this thing. Oh, but sorry, it doesn't work with your version of Git. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> so does the Git shell currently just support the latest version of Git? It supports the latest version of Git as of whenever I last updated the <laughs> time completion configuration file. So I don't think it's the absolute latest version. One thing I've discovered recently, which is a Git feature I didn't know existed, so I don't know if this is new to Git or if it's just new to me, is when you're rebasing and you have a merge conflict or a, a rebase conflict, you can use the command git am dash dash show current patch to see what the diff looked like that Git was trying to apply before it conflicted, which is sometimes really helpful 
to just see what the diff was like before the conflicts. And it's sometimes really helpful because it also shows you what the commit message was. So you can remember what you were trying to achieve with that patch. And that command is, I don't think it's terribly obscure in that when you do get a merge conflict, the output you get tells you in the output, oh, you can use this command to see what the patch is. I guess I just never got around to reading it before. And I know Git shell doesn't tab complete that option. So either it was new or I overlooked it when I was writing that configuration file. Well, either way, you're not alone. Because yeah, that's not one that I've used when I've been rebasing. I also, I guess I haven't read the details and noticed that. But that sounds helpful to be able to see the state before it was trying to apply the new patch on top of the previous state of the code. It's easy for your eyes just to get drawn to the the like big red list of, of conflicting files. Maybe that's what we need is less red. <laughs> so we'll pay attention to the rest of it too. Because <laughs> the red is so distracting and it's the first thing that I look at. I've definitely seen people who run their terminals without colors enabled so that they force themselves to read output more carefully, which uh, is a discipline I respect and do not have. So along the lines of just with Git and some of the the new workflows that come along with it, the client that I'm working with, it's been a different workflow for me because I'm not allowed to rebase my commits. And to give some more detail to that, I'm allowed to rebase the commits. Like if I'm, I'm working locally and then I can squash everything that I want as I'm keeping my branch up to date with master. And then when I push it to a PR, it seems to be there's a little bit of a divide between the team where our thoughtbot process is that if someone is reviewing a PR, they leave comments. We address those comments in new commits and push that up to help the review process. But then at the very end, I will squash all my commits into what makes sense. And it's typically one, maybe two commits. And with this team, there seems to be a small divide where some folks are okay with reviewing in separate commits and then having everything squashed down to what's reasonable to go to production. And then there are other folks that would prefer that it's never squashed after that review process. They really like having everything in separate commits as sort of capturing the conversation that took place and documenting it. So those are the two options at that point. And then once the code goes to staging, once it's in there, then I'm not allowed to rebase because everything that's going to go to master, we want to be in staging. And essentially, that's the point where my code goes into like a free state. And so if I need to make any changes, then that's just going to be a new commit. And then I'll eventually merge that work into master once it's approved on staging. So that's been different for me because I am a big fan of squashing my work down where I tend to think of my commits as when I buy a book and I'm looking through the contents of that book, I want to see a highlight of all the different chapters versus if the author were working with their publisher and it was like chapter one, first approach, chapter two with revisions, and then chapter two A, add some more revisions and feedback from my publisher. Like I don't actually want to see all of that in the book I'm reading. I just want to see the final production. And I tend to think of my commits in a similar state where anything that's going to go to master, go to production, I want to really represent what I want to ship out into the world. Have you run into anything like that where folks are not encouraged to squash or rebase against master essentially to rewrite history? Yeah, I've certainly seen the argument that once you push, you've published your work and then you don't know who's fetched, you don't know who's pulled. And so you shouldn't force push because maybe someone else is adding commits to that branch or maybe you're going to end up in a state where you lose work because two versions of a branch disagree and one ends up stepping on the other one. And I I think I sympathize with that view for certain agreed on branches, like force pushing master doesn't seem like a good idea most of the time. 
but I'm definitely with you on every little commit in a development branch isn't necessarily going to add value in the future. I tend to try to put myself in the frame of mind of like a year from now when I'm trying to understand why this code is the way it is. And it's so long since I wrote it that I don't remember. What am I going to want to see when I run git blame and look at the commit that last touched this line? And I'm probably not going to want to see fix typo in Python doc string as the commit message. <laughs> That's just never going to be all that useful to my future self. So I think the intention of not losing data is good, but the risk of doing everything losslessly is you lose all the signal in amongst the noise. Yeah, I like the way you said that, because that is distracting. So if I have all those commits that are addressing feedback and making changes, that's very helpful for the review process. And I completely like that part of it, where we help someone review the changes that we've made. But once I've made those changes, and then my future self wants to look back, I really want to see the high level. I don't need to see all of the discussion that took place around the changes that I made. I really just want to see what was the final verdict? Where did we land with how this code should work and how it should be tested or how it should look? And then if I do need some more context, that's where I'm going to rely on my git commit messages to give me context around like, why was this change made? How does it address a concern? So I've been thinking about the team's process and intrigued by the idea that they really want to keep the history. And part of me suspects that that could be part of the pain point is if we're writing better git commit messages, then there would be less desire to preserve the history even past the review stage. So that's something that I'm still chatting with people about to see if my assumption is true or not. But either way, I think we're going to start striving for some more detailed git commit messages since a number of folks on the team strongly encourage that as well. And then check back in with some of the others and see, has this helped where you feel like you have all the context that you need when looking at a PR? And if we feel more comfortable at that point where we can squash our commits post-review. I wonder if it'd be helpful to also be aware that the pull requests probably aren't going away. I mean, they're kind of adjacent to the repo in that if you pull down the repository and you're offline, you can't look at whatever's on GitHub. But GitHub's been around for a while. It seems to be reasonably well-funded. It's probably not going to disappear any anytime now, especially now that Microsoft have bought it. You can probably rely on being able to go back and find that pull request discussion if you really need that level of context. And maybe that's an extra layer of safety for people to think about. Of like, Okay, the discussion still exists. It may not be in the repo, but it's on this website that we can find pretty quickly from the repo if we need to. Yeah, I think that's a, a totally fair point. Like we'll still have access to that should we need to go back. And I agree with you. I have no concerns that GitHub is going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> but yeah, there is some of that context that's still there in case we want to go back and revisit a conversation. And I've certainly done that every now and then when I'm trying to dig through and understand a change. But honestly, it's usually just more the context around why a change was made and the comments are typically less valuable to me. I just really want to know. I typically only go to GitHub if someone left a really great PR description but didn't happen to capture that in the Git commit message. And so that will drive me to GitHub and then maybe also out to Trello or any other ticket tracking system to try to gather context around a particular piece of work. Interestingly, my current client has the exact opposite process. They don't use GitHub. They use a tool called Fabricator, which has a very opinionated process. And one of the things it does is it throws away all of your Git commit messages and squashes all your commits down into a single commit and replaces the message with whatever the message was on the pull request or in Fabricator's terminology, the diff that you opened. So you don't have the option really of keeping all of that history 
outside of the Fabricator web app where you can still go and see it, but you are forced into a single commit per pull request kind of world. And there's a template you have to conform to for writing your commit message. So if you haven't filled out several detailed sections, you can't open the diff in the first place, which the Git history ends up being quite clean, which is nice. But I, I found myself getting lazier and lazier with my commit messages because I know they're not sticking around once my branch is merged. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard of that tool before. So when there's a template that you're following, is that part of like if we're doing a parallel to opening a PR on GitHub, so you push up your work, and then if you're opening a PR, then that's where you're presented with a template and you have to follow the particular instructions on how to format your description? So there's a command line tool, uh, which I think is called Arcanist, which one of the things I find frustrating about this tool is that it has a command line tool, which has lots of things that are similar to Git, but not the same. So it's kind of relearning new names for old ideas, I guess. But when you create a diff using that tool, it, it opens up your editor of choice with the template. And if you haven't filled in any lines of text between two of the labels, like there's a summary, there's a, a kind of QA test plan, there's a list of people whose attention you want on this change. And if you've missed any of those sections, then it just won't open the diff. It will just ask you to edit the message again. Interesting. So that sounds very similar to what I use now where I have a Git message template that pulls up any time that I'm doing a commit message. So that sounds a bit similar to that. But that is interesting that it won't let you have more than one commit because if I will typically structure my work where if I'm doing a refactor and then introducing a change, if the refactor is small enough, I'll push up a PR with those two separate commits. Or if I'm doing schema changes, I'll typically put those in their own commit as well. But it sounds like you can't do that with this particular tool. Unless you open separate diffs, which the tool makes possible, but a little bit complicated. I think I still prefer the kind of native Git plus GitHub workflow, personally. As you say, the flexibility to say, in this case, it makes sense for this to be two commits, or it makes sense not to squash this as as aggressively as I might otherwise have done. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see that there are maybe downsides of being forced too far in either direction. Yeah, there is a benefit of that approach where everyone has to follow the same process. Like it's one of the things that I love about having a style formatter. Like that's something that I typically very rarely want to have to think about. So there is sort of a nice benefit to that particular workflow where you know everybody's doing the same thing and there's that consistency. With GitHub, we do get some more creative freedom in how we want to structure everything. And then we have more discussions around, well, what does a good Git commit message look like? And when should we squash and when should we rebase? And so you have a lot more variety in how the team prefers to work. So yeah, it's an interesting trade-off to sort of like streamline the process versus then helping folks work in a way that's most comfortable for them. So that means that you haven't been able to use Git Shell for about nine months. Is that true? Uh, I'm still using it to make my commits, to look at my diffs, all those kind of things. But then once I'm getting to the point of actually sharing my code with others, I'm not pushing it anywhere. I'm running a completely different command using a completely different tool. Uh, I've actually I've had to patch Git Shell because it's a mono repo with this entire company's code all in the one repo, and there were some performance issues with Git Shell that it just couldn't deal with the number of commits and the number of files. So I have some performance improvements that I should push up to GitHub and share with the world. How's your experience been working with a mono repo? Is this one of your first projects that you've worked on with a, a large mono repo or a similar experience yeah. you've had before? It's the first time I've done it. There have been pros and cons, I think. Having everything available in one on your development machine, especially working in a service-oriented architecture, being able to go and see what's the interface definition for this service or what's the implementation of this service and knowing that you have that code and you can find it 
has been really helpful. But then the sheer size of the repo, the speed at which it moves, the number of commits that appear make some of the processes I find very comfortable to be not really practical. I've had to disable my automatic C tag generation in Vim because I can't build C tags against this project. It's just too large. Oh, yeah. So I don't have that navigation option that I am used to. As I mentioned, I had to patch Git shell in a couple of ways to make sure it could generate a prompt in a timely fashion because the way it was trying to find status information across the entire mono repo was not fast. And I think I've seen that with other thoughtbotters who've joined the team and don't use Git shell. I think almost everyone has had some aspect of their dot files or their personal setup. I know Eric Collins had some Emacs tweaks he had to make for his Emacs Git workflow. Everyone had something where just the size of the repo broke a tool that they enjoy. Interesting. And I'm curious, how does it work for the deployment process for the monorepo? Are there many teams that are separated and they're each working on their own part of the application? Are deploys pretty frequent? Although you're in healthcare world as well, so that may impact how frequently you can deploy. Deploys are pretty pretty frequent. Thankfully, we're able to deploy pretty much whenever we finish a feature. The monorepo, I think, helps somewhat with that process because everyone is contributing to the same repo. It means when there are dependencies between one team's work and another team's work, those are captured by the build system. So the tests and the deploy can all take into account the fact that maybe my service uses some code from your service or at least uses the interface published by your service to send requests. And so we know that if your interface changes, my test should run. And if it breaks, then that breaks on the PR where the interface changes, not kind of later when we next try to deploy the service that depends on it. So I think the monorepo has helped with keeping the, the speed of deploys up in that kind of world. We definitely haven't hit a lot of issues where we've had to carefully synchronize, oh, we can't deploy this until we've deployed that. We've thrown a few things behind feature flags to avoid those, but that hasn't been too onerous to do. Yeah, I feel like that was one of the trials and tribulations that I've heard from some teams working on uh, monorepos is that everybody has to upgrade together. So there has to be more organization across the teams if a particular gym or service needs to be upgraded to make sure it doesn't break for anyone else. And then you just mentioned feature flags. So that's something that my team is using heavily. And I've used feature flags a good deal throughout my career. But the current team I'm with, we use them far more heavily where pretty much everything that we ship, we place behind a feature flag. So then that way, if there is anything that goes wrong, or if we want to roll it out slowly to different groups, we have the ability to turn it off quickly or just turn it on for one particular group. And I have to say, I really like that approach. There is a bit more of a cost that goes with that because we have to have a feature flag and essentially preserve two paths of the code. But it's turned out nicely as a way that we can continue to ship stuff more frequently and then turn it on when we're ready or roll it out to folks that are ready for the new feature, but then still also want to support the old one until we're ready to deprecate it. Have you had a similar experience with feature flags where you enjoy working with them or use them heavily with your current team? Yeah, it does sound fairly similar. We tend to put things behind a feature flag and then roll them out slowly to you know maybe 30% of users, see how it goes, and then open them up to everybody. And it's certainly nice to be able to deploy something all the way through to production and then share it more widely within the team and still be able to make tweaks before it hits real humans, especially in a very regulated environment where 
some of the potential mistakes you could make would put you in a non-compliant illegal kind of situation. It's it's nice to be able to deploy with confidence and then tweak anything that, that was slightly off after showing it to legal people and compliance people and whoever else. So that's been nice. How are you finding the process of cleaning up kind of once a feature is out to everybody and it's 100% across your user base and you're happy with it? Are you finding it easy to kind of circle back to those or are they sticking around a long time? So they are, would be the short answer to that, where we realize that we haven't gone back and cleaned up the feature flags. It is easy forgetting about them. So we had a conversation about that fairly recently in one of our retros where we were discussing that we have several static or several deprecated feature flags that we no longer use and old code paths that we no longer need to support now that it's fully rolled out. And I think our current approach is when we're creating tickets that are going to use a feature flag, we're also going to immediately create a ticket to then remove that feature flag work. Because I think that's just a part where we forget because we move on past this ticket, it's done, it's deployed, and then we move on to the next work. And unless someone just happens to remember a week or however long it takes for that feature to be fully out to the public, there's no way that we're going to remember, oh, yeah, we should clean this up unless we see it in the code as we're working on something else. So that's our current approach is that we're going to start creating tickets specifically in the backlog to make sure that we don't forget that feature flag cleanup. Nice. I really like that. I don't think we've used enough feature flags yet that we're feeling that pain, but I'm definitely getting to the point now where I'll, when I see certain parts of the code, I'm seeing a feature flag and thinking, are we still using that one? I don't think that we are. So yeah, we should adopt that same process, I think. Yeah, I'm thinking it'll it'll help us as well. And I think you mentioned that you're working with a QA team. Not a QA team specifically, but because of the highly regulated environment, there are a lot of stakeholders in different roles. And so we are definitely getting quite wide ranging feedback from people in many different roles. You know, there's the technical feedback on a, on a pull request and there's feedback from the people doing the kind of visual design and UX, but then there's also a kind of whole product organization and a whole compliance organization and a legal team who are all weighing in on things depending on the feature, which normally I wouldn't be a fan of kind of such heavy QA processes. I'd favor kind of moving quickly and, and correcting things as we need to, but in this kind of case where it is both laws and potentially people's health that are at stake, it's very important to get some of these things right. And so the feature flags have been really nice, especially with the system we're using where we can list certain accounts that are allowed to see the feature, even when the feature flag's turned off. It lets people preview things in production and give us the thumbs up that we've definitely understood the legal requirements and the compliance requirements and done everything right. Because the, the difference between two acronyms could be could be surprisingly large in this industry. I think the industry needs a few more acronyms. I don't think we have quite enough of them. <laughs> so when you're testing work, is that something that the developers are allowed to test on staging and then it goes to production? Are you testing each other's work or is there a product manager that's typically testing that work? Typically, we're kind of testing our own stuff with both automated tests and then kind of a manual pass on staging. And then we're bouncing it over to a product manager who is both looking at it themselves and coordinating all the other people who might need to look at it, depending on what kind of feature it is and, you know, who's going to be best qualified to tell us that we have done the right thing legally. Oh, that's interesting. So it sounds like there's a small advantage there if it's automated testing that is really the first stage of QA and then it goes out to production and you can turn on the feature flag for a specific person to then test on production. That has the nice benefit of you have all of the production data that's there to drive that feature to verify that's behaving correctly. Because I was about to ask you, I was curious how your team is managing having sensitive data in a staging environment or 
It sounds like maybe y'all don't have sensitive data in a staging environment. What's that setup like for the team? This existed before we started working with the company, but there's a pretty great anonymization process that exists. So services can access data that's kind of the similar volume and shape to real data, but anything that would be identifiable as a particular person has been completely replaced with just generated anonymous data. So you'll get kind of roughly the same number of users, but things like what their zip code is will just have been replaced with a random zip code. What their name is will have been replaced with a random name, which means you get to test the feature, but you're never seeing real data unless you're trying to diagnose a production issue. Okay, neat. So there was a health tech workshop that we hosted recently, and that was one of the questions from someone that was in the audience was how to handle sensitive data and how to have that on staging. And it's my impression it's very hard to get that correct where you're taking real sensitive data and then scrubbing it and putting it on a staging environment. And then that staging environment may not have all the same safety security protocols that production does since we think we're in a state where that data is less sensitive. So we're less worried about someone getting access to it. So that's interesting that y'all are taking the approach of where you're taking that production data, scrubbing it, and then having it on the staging environment. Do you know if there's a particular tool they use for that? or I think it's custom, unfortunately, okay. so uh, no tool recommendation. I also think the staging environment, interestingly, is more secure than the production environment in this particular context because all of the behind-the-scenes stuff is running on the same infrastructure, so has kind of the same level of security applied to things like database servers. But then the actual staging website is only accessible if you're on the VPN of the company. So you couldn't stumble across the staging site or guess the URL of the staging site because you have to be inside the company network to see it at all. So while oh, the data is scrubbed, it's also harder to access than, than production systems. All right. Well, I guess on that note, I think it's about time for us to wrap up. Sounds good to me. Thank you again so much, George, for joining me today. This has been such a pleasure. And good luck with the rest of your Raffapalooza project. Likewise. Good luck with the game. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Steph. If there's anyone that would like to follow you or send you a message, is there a place online that folks can find you? Sure. If you want to email me, I'm george at thoughtbot.com. You can find me on Twitter and GitHub and lots of other places as George Brock. I don't tweet very much, but when I do, that's where I do it. And if you're interested in the Git shell stuff specifically, it's on ThoughtBot's GitHub page, github.com slash ThoughtBot slash Git SH. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steph. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or me at svicari on Twitter or Chris at Chris Toomey or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.